friends and listeners. We have another episode of Below the Hot Line, where you all can call in with your own questions that you might have. The intersection of entrepreneurship, philosophy, and technology. Strange intersection, but it's the three things that I care about most. And you can call in with any question that you have uh, on any of those three or the intersection of them. And if you dig conversations like these, then, I don't know, do the things so, you know that, they, that podcasters say to do. Subscribe and whatnot. Or don't. And then you can just sit back. I think it does help us algorithmically. That's what I'm told. That's what my producer says. Always says mention it, but I don't really care. Here's the thing. This episode and and all of the below the line hotline below the hotline episodes are my favorites in many ways because I get to answer questions directly from you all. So call in if you've got one, and I love we love hearing from listeners. It is we get about ten thousand listeners an episode, but I don't know who y'all are. I rarely ever get to hear from you, so feel free to call in with any question, suggestion, feedback. Let me know, if, like my wife uh, would say, if my posture's terrible. Any and all things. This episode is brought to you by Magic Mind. It is the, as Forbes called it, Silicon Valley's new morning elixir, matcha, nootropics, adaptogens. It's a two-ounce shot of pure productivity. You take alongside your first morning coffee, tea, whatever your morning ritual is, you add it alongside it, and you get eight hours of creative, productive flow. It is a game changer uh, in terms of productivity, makes your to-do list absolutely melt away. It is the anchor to my morning ritual and there's about 10 years of of research that has gone into it. So I highly recommend it. Go to magicmind.co slash, or actually not slash, promo code BTL for below the line for 20% off. It's magicmind.co, promo code BTL. All right, let's jump into the first, well, the first and only question. Come on, James, get it together. Making mistakes in this intro left and right. Here we go. Hey, James, this is Brandon from L.A. Um, I've been listening to your show for over a year. Thank you for going deep, deep into each guest more than any other show on startups. I absolutely love it. Um, so I have a question for you. I'm about to start fundraising for my startup, and I'm curious to know in your experience, what are the biggest mistakes that founders Oh, another mistake there. Mistake Make number four. In the fundraising process that I should try to avoid. Mm. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And thank you so much for the show. This has been really every episode offers me new insights that have changed my life. So thank you. All right. Brandon from LA. Thank you. Uh, thank you, man. Appreciate that. The kind words at the end there. So what are the top lessons around fundraising or the mistakes to avoid? when fundraising it that is a uh, very good question because it is such a strange such a strange exercise to go through when you're building a company and you're an expert on x y or z domain you are let's say you're a, a chef right you know and you and you focused on making amazing food and you have this exquisite you know intricate palate to be able to 
choose the most amazing combination. And then you have to like put a deck together and raise $2 million for your restaurant. Such a strange exercise that is in many ways orthogonal to, to your business. And hopefully these, these top mistakes that I, that I give you, um, are, are actually relevant to whether you are raising for a seed round or a series B for your startup, or you are a restaurateur and you're opening up your first restaurant, or you are that chef that wants to move from just being a chef to, to, to fundraising for your own restaurant. I actually think these mistakes that I made uh, all along the way are helpful. And, and I mean, who the hell am I to talk about mistakes? I don't know. Uh, if I am um, the world's best at it, I, I have raised about $100 million for my own things over the last 14 years of startups. And there have been the first thing that I tried, tried to raise capital for uh, took a year, didn't raise any money, couldn't raise any money outside of 25K from my parents uh, that just out of uh, pure sympathy, they wrote a check. My next thing took nine months before I raised 500K. And then nine days, um, a few months later, nine days to raise 2 million. And, uh, and then after that, um, about two weeks to raise uh, 20 million, or sorry, 12 million uh, for our Series A. Uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, and and then they did our Series B, and, and I've raised capital after that for things. And just long story short, um, I do not mean that as uh, as a brag, just to give some context for people that are coming across this in their podcast player or YouTube and wondering who the hell is this guy. So I think it is a great question because I made so many mistakes early on because I just had no idea what I was doing, and I thought that the things that were compelling to me would be compelling to an investor. And the truth is, uh, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is not really understanding where an investor is coming from. I'll talk about that in a sec. But the first, the biggest mistake that I think founders make is that right off the bat, one of the most critical things to get wrong is when you think that it is all about the pitch and the meeting with the investor. That is 10% of the equation. That is 10% of the equation. That coffee that you've secured with this angel investor in Austin that you that you know is is right, you know, right this your business opportunity is right up their alley. And you you you're getting excited for it. You're drinking a Red Bull before. You should be drinking a Magic Mind before, but let's say your previous uh, first mistake was drinking a Red Bull before. And you think, all right, this is a big moment. The truth is that's 10% of the equation. 90% of the equation happens way before that coffee with that investor. 90% of it happens way before the pitch. An example would be if you can grow a minimum viable product, a minimum viable version of your, of your startup, if you, or your restaurant, you could start serving it on, you know, farmer's markets and uh, come up with a minimum viable version and you can show traction and growth of, of what you're selling in revenue or growth in, in users, that is, for instance, I had no growth and I pitched for nine months, got nowhere. Then five months later, it was growing 30% month over month for five months, and nine days, it raised $2 million. That's how big of a difference those five months 
of focusing on growing the business versus nine months of thinking, well, I need a gatekeeper to give me permission to build my business. So I need to get some angel investor to validate what I'm doing uh, and write me a check before I can go out and do it. And then I, that went, I just spun my wheels with it. Um, and it had no idea that investors really want to, they don't want to invest in risky businesses. That is the biggest misconception about startup fundraising, startup investing that there is. Startup investors, I've invested in maybe 80 startups. I don't want to invest in a risky startup. Yes, there is a risk adjustment that you make when investing in startups versus, you know, investing in Apple or Amazon in a public uh, in the public markets, but for the most part, I'm looking to eliminate risk. And one of the biggest ways that an investor can eliminate risk is seeing traction of the business. And not understanding that night. And then there's the additional parts that come at, that are part of that 90% is what kind of intro did you get to that investor? Was it a um, sage veteran entrepreneur that's giving the intro and saying, Hey, I'm investing in this company or Hey, I've been advising this company or one of the strongest intros I've gotten in the last week or two was someone just saying a founder that isn't an investor saying in their intro, I've watched, um, I've watched this founder. She's I've watched her over 15 months. I've been so impressed by her over the last 15 months of what she's said she's going to do. Then she goes out and does it. Uh, you really should take the meeting. I'm I'm really, really blown away by what they've accomplished. That single sentence cascaded into so much more um, importance of the rest of that email, the deck, uh, that thread in my mind, because there was this. A warm intro of 15 months of exposure to this founder and this the person making the introduction, seeing that, that is all of the work way before uh, even the intro to another investor versus uh, uh, much less the actual coffee with the other investor, with this investor. So 90% of it, traction, how the introductions are made to the investor, you understanding things like how to position your business in a world where you know, okay, these are going to be the top three questions investors are, are going to ask because of your, you know, other nine failed coffee meetings. That is going to go into how you position it, how you answer those things right up top in the first three, five, seven minutes. Um, and all of that work happens way before this this big pitch that you think is is going to be the majority of the equation and ends up not being the majority at all. So 90% comes way 90% of the work of getting a yes from an investor is way before the first interaction with said investor. Next is thinking that it's about vision. Early stage investing, um, vision is important, but to underscore something from the last point, and one of the biggest mistakes, Brandon, you could potentially make is thinking that it's all about vision. Vision is actually maybe it's the capstone to the pitch, meaning, uh, Capstone coming from the the uh, metaphor of how stones are stacked together, and you have one stone at the very end that holds all of the stones around a, a gate or a archway uh, together. So it is it is absolutely invaluable. It is it is so critical having great vision, but it is only a capstone, and all of the other sto- stones building up to that vision are your background as founders are the most important, and in my opinion is your background as as founder and your co-founders. What has the team done before? 
This also goes into that 90% of the equation is before that first interaction is what is your background? And uh, what have you shown a pattern of, of overachieving in previous endeavors uh, or taking risk and, and seeing some rewards in these previous endeavors? But the uh, around this hyper focus that so many founders take around the vision, having this big vision. Well, if you have a capstone in none of the other stones, like founder, but team background, like the product that you could already demo, the brand that you're building, the brand universe, not just the logo, but what is the brand universe that you're building for people? Nike is so much more than just a logo or a pithy phrase. It is a whole universe that that they're building. The same thing goes for uh, a business like Airbnb, a whole brand universe that goes into it. Um, and then traction of the business. I'd say I would take traction all day long over vision. And again, great traction, even on tiny numbers, could be 30% month over month for five months straight. And I had tiny numbers, and we were able to grow. We were able to close a large seed round. Tiny numbers. Um, but 30 users, then going into 36, then going into 44, whatever that uh, the mathematical growth is, of, of customers for five months, that is so much more valuable than we're going to build the corporate version of of clubhouse you know for the new york times to have their own editorial clubhouse rooms or whatever I, I don't know what the pitch would be but that is so uh that is the capstone but it is so far from the full equation and so many founders just start with the start and end with a vision third the third mistake that uh, founders make uh, and often uh, first-time founders make is that they don't arm the investor with a pitch that that investor can then make to others. So many investors, whether it is with their spouse or significant other, when they're deliberate of whether to invest in a business, or it is with other um, other like-minded investors, or especially at a venture, uh, a VC firm, venture capital firm, they need to be armed with a pitch. Maybe they're leaning in, they're excited, but they need to be armed with a pitch for them to take it back to two of their partners that they really like bouncing ideas off of. This is a... Uh, this is a, a mistake and essentially a lesson that no one talks about. But you essentially need to arm the investor with the pitch that they are going to make to others to make a final call. No matter how sage or veteran the investor is, they every one of us wants the validation of smart people around us to say this is a, a smart idea. I actually bounce things off my wife, who's not in tech at all, all the time to see what she thinks. And if I can't articulate the pitch very easily, and this gets down to essentially this, this lesson that it's not just about pitching to the investor, but also having a 30-second articulation of what you're building for them to pitch to others. Some people like to deride the X for Y uh, pitches where it's, we're building the Airbnb for you know for Y. We're building the Uber for Y. We're building the, um, I already mentioned a clubhouse for for you know, this other segment. But the reason that is so valuable, especially when you can you can actually pair it up with, um, you could pair it up with founder background and, and early traction. It's so valuable because then that investor is 99 times out of 100 going to make the pitch or bounce the idea off of someone else. For my old, uh, last business, I basically said, we're going to build a social network for money. And that was so simple for, and then we actually had traction and growth, but the social network for money 
And I don't know what your articulation is, Brandon, but you've got to work uh, like a like a samurai making a sword. I don't know if samurais, they probably didn't make their swords, but um, if they did make their own sword, they're lathing that thing over and over and over again, hammering away, lathing it, lathing it over and over again, and and refining the hell out of that to have the most solid uh, version of a sword you could possibly have. That work of just and it lathing me, just laying the metal over and over again and hammering it out to get rid of all pockets of air, all making it so airtight. And that's ultimately what is uh, the job for the founders is to make the pitch so airtight that there are no cracks that, that come out of it. But in that exercise, I highly recommend you also coming up with this very seemingly pithy phrase, 30 seconds, because ultimately you need to arm that investor with the pitch to pitch others because that's how it comes two days later they say all right i'm in and i have someone else that's in uh or that wants to meet or it's just me and my wife i pitch it over dinner i see what she says and if i can't articulate it simply then um it usually doesn't go very well next and fifth on the list is not understanding things from the investor seat i would highly recommend you approach this this exercise as much as you can from the investor side of things. What are they thinking about? Try to have a coffee with an investor where you're just trying to understand, not even pitching your business, saying, can you walk me through what you wake up every morning thinking about and try what you're trying to solve for? And the reason this is important is because many first-time founders might think, I need to pitch a business that is my airtight pitch is going to be that um, it is, there's no way it's going to fail because this is how we can, at the very least, let's say you're you're a chef and you're like, I'm going to start this food truck and it's going to be low risk and you eliminate risk, not through a structural uh, or team or product or traction um, facets of the equation of making investment, but you eliminate risk by actually thinking really small. And not having this grand vision, but thinking like, hey, you should invest in, um, I had a friend pitch me an AstroTurf company, uh, making AstroTurf for for backyards. And they didn't really understand that what I'm trying to solve for each day, my portfolio is made up of companies that are uh, the, the highest of risk, super early stage. And he was trying to say that I was going to get a 3x return on my money over three years. And actually what, and that might be a great business, but it was, it was strange for him to hear that I need a business that isn't going to be, um, a sure thing three X I, because of the way that my portfolio is built in terms of two years or a year where I might make 15 investments, every single one of those is so high risk that the only way to counter that high risk is for the, the other 14 to be high risk, high reward too. I need every investment to have a 50 X, um, potential which means that something could be three X could be great, but that's for a different type of investor and people that invest in and early stage companies. Um, they all have different profiles of what they're looking for. So try to understand what they're trying to solve for. What I'm trying to solve for is I'm looking for network effects based business and, and won't go into too much detail what a network effect is, uh, but a network effect based business that has a chance at a 50 X potential return. 
And I have to look for those because I've made all these other potential 50X, which also means very high likelihood of, of not working out. I have to counter that risk by taking on more risk. But one out of 15, if that ends up getting 60X, that's 4X on, on all of my capital. And the only way that I can get there is not by making a few you know, potential 50X return investments and then a few 3X return uh, investments. That isn't enough exposure to one of those companies making that 60X return that then, again, on those other 14, they could all go to zero and it's still 4X my capital. So the fifth mistake is not truly understanding what the investor on the other side is trying to solve for. I remember in those first nine months, I just thought, okay, they don't want any risk um, and I'm going to eliminate from the business model. And the truth is, no, they actually, many investors, many startup investors, they're okay with risk on the business side of things. What they, and they are definitely trying to de-risk it, minimize it as much as possible, but they want maximal upside potential. And once I learned that, and then I oriented the pitch towards maximal upside, upside potential, social network around money, trillion dollar potential opportunity. Those are the things that I would say, and then backed it up with, this is my background. I built a financial technology company before this. Um, here's my co-founder. Uh, they're super strong. His super, super strong background. This is our traction to date. Once I started to assemble those things together, then it was the right type of risk and the right type of pitch for, for what investors were solving for. All right, next up, number six, not managing the conversation. When you are in that pitch or when you are in uh, the first email to that investor, as someone really smart told me, either you, with board members said, either you manage the board or the board manages you. That's true for board members, board of directors, your company. It's also true for the pitch meeting with anyone that you're interacting with for a potential investment. Either you manage the conversation and you're on the offensive, not an aggressive way, but on the offensive with having the deck in your laptop, but saying, hey, I have a deck, but actually would love to just tell you a little bit about my background and what we're building. Right off the bat, start to manage the conversation. That is not only so strong, but that's uh, uh, to be able to cater to what you want to get across in the meeting. And uh, I'll touch on what you want to get across in that meeting and in your deck here in a sec, but it is also sets the tone for the, the relationship with the investor. And at the end of the day, investors want to invest in people that they would want to work for that within seven minutes, they're gripped, they're hooked. They actually are like, I want to follow you wherever you want to go. Take me there. So Brandon, manage the conversation, manage the interactions and start off with, I always love it when founders say, I have a deck, but um, I and actually have a deck because I don't know, two or three times you might want to pull up a visual because a, a picture is worth a thousand words, but then say, but I actually just, before I get to the deck, would love to tell you a little bit about my background and what we're building and boom, right off the bat within the first 30 seconds, I'm like, oh sweet. Okay. I, I, I'm subliminally already captivated by this founder and I'm following them. So right off the bat, one of the biggest mistakes that I see founders make is go into, going into the conversation thinking that maybe it's going to be this contentious shark tank like type of dynamic and, and I'm going to wait to see how they strike first or, or just honestly lose the attention of the investor in the first 30 seconds, two minutes as the investor thinks through how they want to kick off the conversation. And it starts way over in this territory when 
right off the bat, you wish you had brought it to you know the territory over here. You get to control that dynamic. So don't miss that opportunity to manage the conversation. Okay, second to last is what goes into a deck and honestly, what goes into the verbal articulation of, of why there is a compelling investment opportunity here in the first three minutes of your conversation, literally first three minutes, but certainly in the deck as well. And it's answering these three key questions. Why us? So why, why you as a founder? Why this? Why is this uh, really compelling and interesting? And then why now? Why is this the right time, the exact perfect time for you to build whatever you're building versus five years ago, eight years ago, or five years from now? Why us? Why this? And why now? And again, you want that to be in the deck. Implicitly, you don't have to explicitly call it out of of those three questions, but you want that to be implicitly be in there with uh, your background, uh, your traction to date, uh, your approach, why this, your approach, why it's working so well and why everything else is, is failing uh, to solve this problem. And then third, why now? What is unique about, you know, right now, Uber would be mobile, um, Airbnb, it would be the, the fact that people are going online first when they're looking for a place to stay and travel versus 20 years ago using travel agents or uh, only wanting to go through some you know, reputable hotel hotel chain. There are so many of these examples where you have this, uh, this inflection point in technology, COVID being a perfect example in, let's say, telemedicine or remote work. Whatever it is, you want to hit that why now. And you want to be able to articulate that in the first three minutes. Paul Graham, uh, in one of his recent essays, the founder of Y Combinator, maybe the best investor of all time, said that he can judge a, a good investment in seven minutes. And they make investment interview 10 minutes because seven just sounded too arbitrary. But how can you articulate that without a deck? Because you can't use a deck with Y Combinator's interview structure. How can you articulate why us, why this, why now in seven minutes or ideally in the first three, especially if you're managing the conversation from the get-go? Okay, last and certainly not least, perhaps the most important lesson in fundraising and the biggest mistake that I have made and I see founders make all the time is focusing too much on the results instead of the process. You think you are focusing on raising $2 million for your seed round. The truth is what you should be focusing on is 30 different investors and conversations with all of them, having a you know an Excel spreadsheet that has that has the list of, of the 30 you're going to go after, where you are with them, lessons learned from each conversation. It is so much more about the process than it is about the results. The best salesperson in the world, a great, great uh, sales rate, close rate would be 30%. Realistically, you know, it's more like 20%. If you have a great salesperson and you got a great list and you have an actual, um, you know, an efficient price on what you're selling, maybe you're only closing 10% or 15% of the time. You could be a millionaire salesperson, you know, working at Google, Cisco, um, any one of, of the great sales force, any one of the great sales organizations, and you are top of the food chain if you're selling if you're closing 10%, 15% of the time. So that means when you are fundraising, especially a first-time fundraiser, you should you should expect maybe 5% close, 10% close. That means that out of a list of 30, 3 you're going to say yes, and that means two very important things. One, it means you need to build out a list of 30 
to get three yeses. And then it also means that you should expect 27 no's. And even if you are a you know, really um, seasoned fundraiser, that still means that maybe you're closing 20%, 30% of the time. Let's say you're even closing 30% of the time. That means that for every yes, you're getting two no's. And in that list of 30, you're getting 20 plus people saying, no, I don't think it's a fit for me because of X, Y, or Z. It's not a best of luck to you, but I really doubt uh, this business because of whatever reason. That's a lot of no's. And for a first-time founder, for Brandon, if this is your first time fundraising, then that means that you might get 25 no's. So one, build a list for 30, if not 40 or 50, if you want to get, if you need to get more than three yeses. That's not that big of a deal, by the way. You're going to look at a daunting list of 50. That'll You'll go by in, in, in two months. You'll have gone through it systematically, um, maybe three months, but that's a short period of time. Much better than winging it, too, because you you're going to get to that list of 50 one way or the other. You might as well do it efficiently. The other thing is um, you're just going to deal with a lot of rejection. And when you know that sales, that sales quotient of, of 15% is world-class, you know, you're kicking ass a first time founder. If you're closing 15% of the time, then that means that you can take the other, you know, no's can really roll off, roll off your back. So hopefully these are the, uh, the lessons that, that I learned the hard way that you can learn the easy way with me answering your question, Brandon. And, uh, hopefully you can avoid what I think are the top mistakes. First time founders, really any founder that's fundraising, uh, makes over and over and over again. And hopefully this has been valuable for you. So that has been another episode of Below the Hotline. Feel free to hit us up if you got any questions of your own. Until next time, everybody.